Welcome to Nothing to Hide, the Moore & Giles podcast. I'm your host, Daryl Calfee. Moore & Giles is one of America's oldest leather companies. We were founded during the heart of the Great Depression here in Lynchburg, Virginia in 1933. And almost 100 years later, our leadership is still in pursuit of one thing, the world's finest leather. Perhaps we've even touched your life. Maybe it was in a hotel lobby or your home, or perhaps this morning when you went to get a cup of coffee, you found your favorite leather chair in the corner, you settled in. Well, that leather is probably Moore & Giles too. Our goal was simply just to share some stories within this podcast, to take you on a journey, to let you experience what we experience. We'll teach you how leather's made and give you insight to some of the subtle nuances of the material. Did you know it's one of man's oldest materials? We're also going to take you to meet some of our favorite people in the world, designers and creative influencers, and people that are connected to Moore & Giles through one thing, leather. We hope you join us on the Moore & Giles podcast, Nothing to Hide. Hey guys, we're here at Common House in Charlottesville, Virginia today to record our next episode of Nothing to Hide, the Moore and Giles podcast. And I'm here today with our guest, Jim Meehan. What's up, Jim? Hi. Where are you at today, man? The man cave in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, Jim and I go back a few years. I met Jim when I joined Moore and Giles about six years ago. And if you don't know Jim Meehan, I think you probably have never opened up a bar book or been to a, what would you call it, Jim, like a really high class type of establishment? I don't know. I've sort of become synonymous with the modern speakeasy. So if you've heard of these speakeasies, it's probably partially my fault. Well, that's what I was going to call you. I was going to call you the godfather of the modern bar. So I don't know if that makes you know, sense. Daniel DeGroff would probably take a little bit of exception with that. So <laughs> yeah, the, I'm part of the grandchildren of the godfathers of the modern bar. Well, what I would say about Jim is that number one, he's a dear friend of more Giles. Number two, he's expert in his field. And, you know, number three, Jim is somebody who loves and celebrates hospitality. So we want to take a few minutes with Jim today and kind of dive down that rabbit hole. I guess a quick bio on you, Jim, and you jump in here, but of course you started as a bartender. You were a journalist. You've been an author. You've written, what, two books now? Three books? Two books. Working on a proposal for my third now. Crazy. And then in addition to that, you've launched successful bars and or restaurants. How does that work? I think mostly bars with some of them with better food than others. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And, you know, for those of you guys who can't tell, Jim is not from the South. Jim, why don't you tell everybody where you grew up and your geography? I've hovered above Mason Dixon for my 42 years. Grew up right outside of Chicago in Oak Park and River Forest. Went to college in Madison, Wisconsin, the sort of Charlottesville of the Midwest, and yeah. then lived in New York City for 12 years. And then I relocated to Portland, Oregon for a little more than four and a half years ago. So I know this about you, that you are a dedicated husband and a great father. But man, those things don't seem like that they work very well for a guy that's in the hospitality and bar industry sometimes. Like, how have you done it? Part of the big sort of change in my life leaving New York had to do with that exact thing. Our daughter's six. So we saw all of our friends when they had kids, they all sort of immediately moved and many of them tried to buy a house while they were pregnant. And we realized that like, after talking with a lot of those people that for the first year, they're going to be sleeping next to the bed. So mm. it doesn't really matter if you live in a one bedroom, you don't need a second bedroom. But when Olivia got to be about a year and a half and we realized they were going to need more space, I sort of looked around and most of my friends at that point moved to Brooklyn and got in a competitive 
neighborhood where they could get into a good public school. And it just started down this rat race, for lack of a better term. To no offense to all the great parents in New York who are doing everything they can to educate their kids, including my brother. But it's just a lot. New York is a grind. And I think for 12 years, I woke up every day, carpe diem style, kissed the mirror, and was like, I'm going to go to work today. And I was excited about it. Part of my story that I didn't feel comfortable telling at the time was that I was tired, you know, Mm. and I was moving towards burnout. And I also just didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel as far as these kids. A lot of the people who I worked with who were my colleagues and peers didn't have kids. And a lot of the restaurateurs that I looked up to had kids, but they still worked all the time. And I don't know when they ever saw them. So for me, leaving New York was the only, I needed an out because I wanted to re-examine how I spent my time and I wanted to be a dad. I realized that New York City and my sort of lifestyle there was incompatible with father. Well, I think that speaks so highly of why I personally love you. And I think that's why you're a much better human being than I can even imagine myself being in that moment. Because like, I think the selfish desires that I would have, I'd want to stay. And you said, hey, there's something bigger than me. And you know, I'm going to go out here to Portland to find it. So I that, think I realized that the mentality mentality of New York is very competitive and New York is so expensive to live in that you're never going to make enough money. There's never enough. As soon as there's enough, that takes off a little bit of that competitive edge. And I just realized that A, I was traveling like 10 days at least a month. So I wasn't in New York all that much. And I realized that I had colleagues who work with me doing the day-to-day that I could pass off my day-to-day work and sort of take myself out of the equation. I had a little window that I knew I could do this and I did it. And I have to say five years later that it was not a good decision professionally, but it was a great decision personally. And I believe that if I look back on all my success and if I didn't have Val entirely focused on our kids, I don't think I could focus on my career like I have. And I feel like for me, being out here allows me to devote the time and energy and resources needed to raise my kids so I can really hone in on my career and what I want to do. Man, well, big shout out to Val, so... (laughs) None of this happens without the mothers and the partners and the women. I love it. All right. So you told us a little bit about the exit from New York. Tell us about the entrance into New York. How does a guy from Madison, Wisconsin end up number one in what would be like the coolest speakeasy in the world? And how do you even get there from Madison, Wisconsin? The college slush fund ran out when I was a sophomore and my brother was a freshman. And his longtime partner was at school at Parsons. And they were at a point in their relationship where it was like, we're either going to stay together or break up. So Peter moved to New York when he was 20. I drove him out there when I was 21 and just immediately was like, this is the place. Like I was studying modern literature and learning about all the poets and artists and people who live there. And, I, and the East Village was just electric in the 90s. And so I immediately fell in love with it went back to school, became a resident of Wisconsin. It was very cheap to go to college as an in-state student and took five years to finish. But I finished my degrees and Peter just sort of hustled and worked his way from a job as a secretary at an Apple tech company to working his way into the food world. And when I moved to New York, he was just transitioning from working in PR to working for the New York Times. So it was a fun visiting Peter year to year and seeing his 
his career change. And it was in some ways it was serendipitous because Peter was in the food world. But in other ways, it was not because Peter disavowed me as professionally, not officially, but he unofficially disavowed me because he was a critic for the New York Times. And so yeah. having a brother in the business was sort of like there was a, I wouldn't say there was a conflict of interest, but he's a journalist, yeah. uh, on-premise person as church and state. So it was an interesting time to be in New York with Peter because most people didn't realize he and I were brothers and still don't realize it today, which is kind of hilarious. So for people that don't know, tell people real quick what Peter is or does. So Peter was, as I said, he worked his way from an internship at Food & Wine to working with Phil Baltz on, on PR to interning with Mark Bittman and Charlie Pinsky on a PBS television series to being the 25 and under critic for the New York Times to writing the Frankie Spentino and Momofuku cookbook to founding Lucky Peach with David Chang to now being the managing editor for the LA Times food section that just relaunched. So he's a pretty impressive rise from River Forest, No Park, Illinois. So cool, man. I mean, you both have, and I think that's awesome. So you drop into the scene. I Madison. moved to New York, right? I graduated, saved money for a year, moved okay. to New York nine months after 9-11 in 2002. Wow. And it was an interesting time to move to the city because the city was still reeling from the attacks and yeah. the economy was really in a bad way. And we had no tourism, which is a huge part of New York's economy for F&B. Yeah. And we were at this interesting stage in the restaurant bar business where New York had not transitioned to where it is now. What I mean is when I moved there, I applied to all these bars and all of them told me that they couldn't hire me because I didn't have two years of New York City bartending experience. Okay. It was this crazy time where bartenders and waiters and people who worked in restaurants for the most part, the money was professional, but the attitude and the approach was not. Annie Meyer and Steve Hansen, really started changing the game as they opened more and more restaurants because they weren't looking for people who had lots of years of experience under their belt. They were looking for people who they could train to do the job they wanted to yep. do. And eventually yep. when the two of them had enough restaurants and had enough success, I think I would attribute their hiring practices for really creating so many more opportunities for people who are immigrants, even though they weren't international immigrants, but for immigrants moving to the city who wanted to work in the business, but just they weren't from yep. there. And so so you link up with these guys, you're brand new to the city, you're green essentially. And then how do you become the guy that opens up PDT New York? I, no one would hire me to work in a bar. So I got a job. Peter introduced me to the owners of Five Points who only offered me a brunch bartending shift because no one wanted it. And then they <laughs> told me that I needed to train as a waiter. So they made me train as a waiter first thinking that like they could get me to give up, but I never gave up. They made me train for months. And finally, I started waiting tables and working this brunch bar shift. And then eventually, as I do, I took over full-time bar work and was working management, like sort of supervisory shifts and really was trying to get them. I fell in love with wine because I had to learn about wine to work mm. in this place. And I mm. thought I was going to become a sommelier. And in 2003, Eben Freeman, who was the bar manager of a restaurant called WD50, which was around the corner from where I lived, he took me to Milk and Honey for the first time. And I went to Milk and Honey and had this like amazing experience where 
I always tell the story, you know, Evan and I walk in, we sit down, the waiter who later became Sasha's partner at Little Branch comes over to the table, offers us this choose your own adventure drink, sort of omakase where we get to, you know, tell him what style of drink that like almost like a tailor that we wanted to have. And he had his bartender make it and his bartender was Toby Maloney. And I ended up ordering this drink called the Gold Rush, which was Elijah Craig 12 year old bourbon with fresh lemon juice and honey that was shaken and served over a frozen hand cut ice cube and a frozen old fashioned glass served strangely on a dental napkin with a stainless steel bottom straw from a sterling silver service tray with a candle on it by Joseph who was looked right out of Boardwalk Empire. And I'm glad it didn't make an impression intimate. on you. Yeah, it just was a, a moment where I was like, ah, I'd read Dale DeGroff's Craft of the Cocktail and Gary Regan's Joy Mixology and I was paging through Ted Hayes Vintage Spirits, Forgotten Cocktails, which all came out right around this time. Mm. I was like, I'm not going to be a sommelier. I'm going to do what these guys are doing. Milk and Honey was like a religious sect and no one ever left. So I was never able to get hired there. But I did, once again, through Peter, I met the editor of Food & Wine's cocktail book and ended up, I found out that he was speaking with Audrey Saunders, who I had read about in the media, was opening a bar called The Pegu Club, which was going to be like the next Mm. big thing. And so I got Rob to get Audrey to come visit me at this other bar I was running. And it was 2004. It was right when Google launched Google image search. So you could actually image search somebody because I had no idea what she looked like. Yeah. But Google image searched her. And weeks later, one night around nine o'clock, she came in. And it was funny. She came in and that night I was bartending with a guy named Gabriel Stolman, who Mm. I went to Madison with, who now owns like seven restaurants in the York. He's one of the top restaurateurs in New York. And we had cut him that night. So I had the bar to myself. And that was when I met Audrey. She ordered dinner and like I sent him a mid-course and you know sheepishly said that I knew who they were. And then I offered to make them drinks. And I made them like all my drinks and gave her all my recipes and begged her for a job. And she finally hired me. And so opening the Pegu Club was really my sort of entree into the like yeah. tiny little cocktail world that I sort of discovered at Milk and Honey. And Audrey and her partner Julie Ryan. And, and really sort of introduced me to the very small world mm. of cocktails. And I worked there for two and a half years. And PDT came about through, I always tell young bartenders, there were so few people who were both interested in cocktails or knew anything about them back then mm-hmm. that I used to get offered consulting opportunities literally almost every shift I worked. Wow. And one of them was from my original regulars at that restaurant I landed at, Five Points, who was opening a bar in the East Village. And I went and met Chris and his partner, Brian, and they were designing a beautiful bar based on other sort of proto cocktail lounges in New York, but they didn't know how to run a cocktail bar. They just knew how to build a bar. So they brought me on to create the program and hire people Mm -hmm. and help them make it a functioning cocktail bar. So a lot of it was serendipitous. A lot of it was through opportunities my brother helped create. That's so cool. I think, you know, for all of us as guys, like there's been this moment where we've been with another guy and we've said like, oh, we should open a bar. That would be awesome. You know? And I mean, you've lived that out. You know, what are something that you would tell somebody that they could easily digest that, hey, if I'm going to open a bar, like what is something I should know? What should I be aware of or be scared of or be excited about? Um, I always say to people when I'm trying to get them to open a bar with me that I make sure that they understand that opening a bar is a terrible way to make money. And I feel like the first thing I always say to people, and I'm not saying that you can't run 
run a profitable bar that a bars aren't profitable. But I always am clear with people that it's not a good way to make money. It's an inefficient, high, it's hard to make money with it. And mm. so if you want to open a bar, not because you need that bar to be your sole or primary source of income, that's a good start. And then you move on to other questions about how you plan on running it. But I think that for me, a bar is... If you have finances in real estate and you have finances in stocks, if you have a diverse investment portfolio and you spend a lot of your time in restaurants and bars entertaining guests or just because that's a thing you have, Mm. then maybe that's a good idea to have your own bar because then you can start bringing those people to your own bar and sort of being able to be a better host. I mean, based on what you do, yeah. you know, it seems like your bar is sort of CrossFit, you know what I mean? <laughs> the same way that you, you have yeah. used the gym as a way to sort of create community. Mm. Um, the bar is one of the oldest American ways for communities to gather. Mm. Perhaps it's not as healthy as CrossFit, uh, <laughs> but that again, that tell that to someone who throws out his back and spends uh, thousands of dollars in rehab. So Man, that's I, such I a good comparison. Bar, there's so many ways as a bar operator that you can build and nurture community in your neighborhood. So I think where our lives intersect is inside of that bar, there's material leather, right? Yeah. That I think has a traditional space inside of any bar, right? Whether it's in the banquette or it's on the stool or it's a touch of leather somewhere where the patron is maybe their hands or arms are resting on it, you know, that kind of thing. But I mean, you've been in every bar in the world. Where does leather make sense in a bar today? Everywhere. I mean, my last bar, which sadly didn't last very long, but remains the prototype for what I'll do moving forward Prairie School. We got you guys to do the leather throughout that bar and throughout the restaurant. And a book that really changed the way I think about designing bars and how bars work was a book by Leonard Corin, whose latest book is called What Artists Do. Yeah. And he wrote a book called Wabi Sabi and Wabi Sabi Mm -hmm. Further Thoughts. And Wabi Sabi, you know, very quickly is the Japanese aesthetics that surround the tea ceremony. And the thing I would say that I was able to connect between the Japanese aesthetics of the tea ceremony and using leather in a bar is that one of the things I've found as you meet people who love bars and go to bars is many of them end up gravitating towards old bars, you know, bars like McSorley's in New York that has been around since the 19th century. And I think the reason why they like it is you walk into the place and it, you can feel the history like coursing through the place. And I feel like if you build a bar with stuff you can get at Home Depot, it's gonna <laughs> like not to diss Home Depot, but like drywall and ikea furniture will get you open but it doesn't age well it really doesn't age at all so i would say that what i've realized like with pdt for instance you open on a budget so it opened with vinyl (laughs) banquettes but we eventually transitioned all the banquettes and bar stools to more in giles leather and a lot of that was financial but what i've found is that the beauty of leather is like the beauty of raw denim like the beauty Mm -hmm. of great old pieces of wood is that the more you use them, the better they look as opposed to other materials, which don't patina. And I think that the ability of materials like denim or wood or leather to show where, but also show how it's worn is something that the 
Japanese aesthetics of wabi-sabi really sort of has a value system for. And I feel like for me, I really like that. Well, I think there's no harsher environment, right, than a bar. Well, ideally it's harsh because ideally it's a busy bar, which means you don't have to worry about going out of business. Uh, In the event that it's not a busy bar, we currently live during an environmental crisis right now based on how we build things or how we consume things. Mm -hmm. And, And the thing I'll say about building things or making things of leather is if you choose the right leather for the right job, you're not going to have to remake it. You just have to take care of it. And I think that that is something that I find that as I get older, I'm glad I have horse hide shoes. Like I'm glad that I've invested in pieces that, you know, all I have to do is put a little bit of leather conditioner on it and it looks better than it did when I bought it. Yeah, 100%. I think too, what people don't really understand about leather often is that it is a sustainable choice in that number one, we've recycled something that was a waste material or waste byproduct. And the fact that we're able to turn it into something useful and beautiful is amazing. But you're going to buy it once or you're going to buy it twice. And I think what happens in those environments like your bars where you spend the money one time to do it right and it ages and wears in beautifully. And if you don't, like you said, that vinyl, you're going to look at it in a few years and be like, oh man, it's terrible. It's like the difference between a margarita and a Manhattan. A margarita is a deceptively crushable drink. And a Manhattan is like a drink that most people don't gulp down. They savor it. The interesting thing about the two of them is that a margarita has two ounces of tequila and and up to three quarters of an ounce of Montreux or triple sec. And a Manhattan has two ounces of whiskey and one ounce of vermouth. So the margarita is stronger than the Manhattan. And I would say that maybe the analogy is not perfect or apt in every way. But when you buy something nice, you take better care of it than when you buy something that you're just gonna crush. And I would say that on top of the fact that the leather is gonna age better, you're going to treat it differently because you spent more on it and it's an investment. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. the way I've begun to more explicitly look at what I do and what I make. Why don't I spend twice as long or 10 times as long making something beautiful so that people don't want to get rid of it. (laughs) True. Well, so speaking of something that's lasted a long time, I mean, how do you handle a bar as it continues to age? My example of that is you open PDT, it's in New York, it's become very successful, it's become really, really well known, that kind of thing. And then at some point, right, like that thing starts to wear out. And how do you keep a hospitality experience fresh for everybody that walks in the door? The interesting thing that I think a lot of us on the cutting edge forget Mm-hmm. is that and it's funny I read a great article online recently about this about bar menus and the article was about not changing your bar menu the Pegu Club for instance has had the same bar menu for 15 years mm-hmm. or Milk and Honey which is now Boy, which is run by the same guys who ran Milk and Honey they don't have a bar menu and I think one thing that we tend to forget those of us who are always working on the next new project or who are creatives who are insatiable is that there are still people discovering the things that we created Mm -hmm. years ago today, or they never heard of it. And I think that those of us who are always on to the next things, we discount the fact that so much of the things we spent so much time and energy on are like totally white hot news to someone else. So I would say that as I've gotten older, I've realized that while I'm maybe over it or it's old to me or it's maybe not as fresh as it was when it started, Mm -hmm. the 
humbling and fascinating part about a bar like PET is a New Yorker who's lived there forever walks in there every day who's never heard of the place. So I feel like the challenge to operators and creatives and marketers and mm-hmm. people like you and I is to not get over our own stories and to not get over our own creations yeah. and to dig deep into that well of enthusiasm to show off this thing that like we created a long time ago that a lot of other people have heard about and they're over too. And you're like, this is, yeah, this is it. This is PDT. And the feedback loop, if you're lucky, is way longer than you would ever imagine it. And not to say that you shouldn't change, but for instance, when we opened PDT, we changed the cocktail menu in its entirety for the first four seasons. And what I found was people would come back planning to share the experience they had with their guests and we'd pulled the rug out from under them. We changed all the drinks. And so we had to start all over with the person who brought those people Mm. And then they weren't equipped to host their friends to share the thing that they wanted to share with them. So in some ways, sometimes you just got to get out of the way. And Mm. I'm not saying don't evolve, but I am saying so much of becoming, I would say like of a product or of a place becoming successful Mm. is listening to the feedback and looking at your sales and looking at what Mm. people love. Even if you don't love it, making sure that, that what they love is what sticks around and what doesn't work kind of falls off the track. Well, I think when you bolt on what you just said to your previous statements about things aging and becoming more beautiful over time and wabi-sabi, I think that's a mentality that you have. I think it is a way of life. It's almost a discipline for you. And so I hesitate to even ask you like what you're evolving into next or what you're working on next because... I do this for myself. It's fun when people discover stuff I did a long time ago. You know what I mean? And the greatest part about being a bartender is you make something in front of someone and hand it to them and you get to watch them drink it so the feedback loop is minutes if not seconds and it's almost pretty instant that you can tell they either really like it it's okay or they don't like it and and oftentimes i was blessed for them to really like it so i have a short interest and feedback loop for feedback and i think as i've switched from bartending to doing other things i've had to condition myself to wait You know, like with the books, it's years sometimes before someone opens up a book of mine and actually reads it. And I have to program myself to be aware that, all right, like I'm not going to get any feedback from this for a long time. And that's just what it's going to be. Or I may never get the feedback because I don't get to watch them read the book. Well, I was going to say, I think all things equal, when you look at the work of your book and you look at the work of these bars, both have said, we're pouring an immense amount of work into the details. And we hope that each time you come back or reopen the pages, you rediscover something new. And I felt that way about your first book. Like every time I would go through it and look for a new recipe for our home or for entertaining guests, that kind of thing, I felt like I was constantly discovering new ones. And I was like, man, this is so good. I think people forget that there's always something new to be found, even in something you feel like is something you know well or you've experienced before. And I think that is most applicable in when you share it with someone else. And I think the thing that I even learned between book one and book two, and that I've certainly learned from bar to bar, is that there is an intrinsic modularity to the products that I design Mm -hmm. and that I'm part of designing now. And what I mean by that is the PDT book is very specific about the proportions, the spirits that are in it, the person who created it, it is like a snapshot. Whereas the new book 
it's specific, but it, like I listed the recipe as origin logics and hacks. And that hacks part acknowledges that you may want to make it your own way. And in fact, you probably will. And these are the things you should consider when you make it your own. And going back to the leather and going back to how the leather changes with the way you use it. Yeah. I think the reason why people fall in love with the Meehan bag or the roll up or these other products we've worked with on Morn Giles is because the bag has a modular quality where I put my mixing glass, you know, other people might put bottles or I put strainers, they may put something that I didn't think of. So I, I feel like when you design things that are modular enough for people to be like, I see how this is supposed to be used and I'm going to follow that lead, but I'm going to do this my own way. Like I'm going to put this here yeah. or that there. And I think that that is the key to success in many avenues of life. As much as people would love to buy a fully grown tree, what they'll realize is if they plant a small tree and get old and watch it grow year to year, the immense pride and enjoyment they'll have looking at that tree later on in life vastly value-wise trumps something that they just purchased and put there like a giant palm tree. In <laughs> yeah. You may have the money to buy a whole huge full-grown palm tree, but growing something and watching it change over time is yeah. intrinsically more valuable. So if you design things that like you create, but that others can kind of claim, and that's where I think you've done something smart. Well, and I think to just build on that, the requirements of consistently watering anything, whether it's a tree or your bar business or the book that you're in the process of writing and, and developing, that takes real work. I think it takes a consistency and a dedication and always believe that the cream will rise to the top in that. And I think that's why Jim Meehan is still relevant in today's world. Even though you've had so many layers of success, one of the best things about Jim Meehan is that today he's still relevant in any of those spaces. All of these projects I've worked on, I've worked on with partners. Yeah. And I feel like PDT is successful because Brian and I were a very interesting odd couple or <laughs> yeah. successful because of Chris Gall's beautiful illustrations or the Meehan's manual is successful because of John Marco and Duran's photos you know, yeah. and illustrations. So I feel like the other thing I've learned is while being successful or quote unquote winning is a goal of mine and something I relish, winning with others yeah. is way more fun than being up there on podium yourself. Because yeah. at the end of the day, when you win by yourself, all the other candidates are sitting there being like, I should be there right now. Leadership is lonely enough and I feel like it's better to be on stage and I think it's better to share success with others and for that reason, I feel like as I look back on the projects that I've done before and look at what I want to do in the future, I'm always inclined to collaborate and while I feel like I'm a bull in the china shop, which I know you've seen behind the scenes in a collaborative environment, I like working with smart, intelligent, passionate people who know a lot about things that I don't know a lot about and seeing what happens. And I think that's where things get interesting and fun for me. Man, that's so good. Well, I know you're super busy right now. And so I'm just grateful you took a few moments to join us today. Where can people find out more about Jim Meehand and the latest book? The latest book needs to get sold. So it's really the latest <laughs> book proposal right now. <laughs> the latest book that actually came to fruition is the Meehan's Bartender Manual that you can find hopefully at your local independently owned bookstore. And the other one as well is the PDT Cocktail Book. And then I'm at Mixography, both on Twitter and Instagram. M-I-X-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y on Instagram and Twitter. And I have a website that's mixographyinc.com. My man. All right, Jim. Love you so much. You're such a love fantastic you human being, bro. I'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. Good to talk to you. All right. Bye, Jim. Cheers.